That's the idea of Tesla, right? They they tilted the market, and now all of a sudden it was cool to make electric cars. Mm. If our contribution could be, it's cool to make them completely different, mm. and everyone comes in and does something completely different, that would be awesome. You know, you're an old guy. What would be fun? Space jet skis. <laughs> <laughs> right? So hi there. This is Way Ahead Podcast. This is our third episode, and today we'll be talking with Louis Horn of Unity, Swedish electric car maker. So what's the sound you would make when you play with cars? As it goes like, vroom, 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 or I prefer a motorcycle, so it's like, wing, 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 maybe. <laughs> exactly. And as much as I'm annoyed by that sound, to be honest, I can't think of any other way to imitate cars. I'm really curious about like 10, 20 years in the future, next generation, how, what sounds will they make when they're playing with their toy cars and accelerating and racing with each other? So what's your experience with electric vehicles? And you've been owning one for, or a couple actually. No, I've only owned one. All right. We'll be getting to the second one soon, but not there yet. All right. Uh, it's good fun. I like it. I was very surprised. I mean, you know, I had, I knew what they could bring, but I haven't had the experience of what they could bring, as in like, you know, how it drives, how it feels. Uh, so when I first sat in one, I was completely blown away, obviously by the fact that an electric motor can instantly push the, the car forward rather than having to rev up and then shift gears and all that. It's like the power, the torque goes directly from motor to wheel and to ground, so it's an instant boom push you get from behind. So that was the first thing that blew my mind. <laughs> you mean it's like fun to drive? It is, it is. <laughs> but do, do they do like remote uh, maintenance as well? I mean, and I guess I that would my, be possible. Yeah, I don't think the, the, the version I have, the old Leaf that has that, but I'm sure next versions will have that. I mean, basically software is getting eating the, the car industry faster and faster, so I imagine. I can't imagine it not being like that soon mm. for all of them. In the first place, why why did you get this car? What was the? Oh, that's been something I've decided a long time ago. It was <laughs> there was no other option for me. I made a promise to myself that I'll never have anything with an exhaust pipe, and so I had to wait until I co I could afford something without one. <laughs> it took a while, but <laughs> so there's some environmental decision. I remember when what was it called EV one from. GM came out and then I was like yes that's the kind of thing I always like to play with electronics I never like to play with burning fossil fuels so me and a friend we've been building this uh, electric trike so we bought we bought a couple of um, kick bikes sort of a little bit bigger uh, though mm -hmm. and then we um, brought them together and we took batteries and uh, and wheels from these hoverboards and built them together. And now he is uh, texting me actually, <laughs> this, this guy. Talk of um, the mm -hmm. And um, last week he bought uh, a chassis uh, and a couple of new hoverboards, uh, which he, he, he actually got it running now <laughs> with full electronics with LED, LED lights and everything. <laughs> it's quite cool. Uh, but like building building a car from, from a blank paper, mm. that's, that's really interesting. And mm. that's what the Swedish car company Unity has been doing. So we're quite lucky to have 
you guys here today. And uh, Louis Horn, what did you think of when you started off filling from a blank sheet of paper? Yeah, uh, hi guys. Firstly, thanks for inviting me here. It's a pleasure. Um, so yeah, what, what do we think? I mean, there were really many motivations for this uh, company. A lot of different motivations, like personal ones and industry ones and so forth. But um, in terms of the blank sheet of paper focus, um, it, it was just really clear that we keep on iterating on the same thing. Path dependency is something that humans have evolved over thousands of years. We evolved it to keep us safe, you know, stay on the path, don't get eaten by a lion. But eventually it has the opposite effect. If we can't let go of not just fossil fuels and things like that, but just the way technology changes. So if you see a, a vast change in, in technology, like what we saw with the smartphone, that to me, when I hold the smartphone, I think like, wow, humans have arrived. This is exciting. Or when I ride my one wheel to work, electric unicycle, I think, wow, humans have arrived. But with cars, it's still just an iteration of the same thing. Mm. Um, in terms of, I'm specifically talking about the user experience, um, the amount of buttons and pulls. And I mean, we, we have a, a Zoe at work and I think it's a great car, but the it's it's like patting your head and rumbling your tongue. There's so many different things and there's so much cheap chunks of plastic everywhere. It, it just really felt like there has to be a reason why these things don't vastly change when the electric technology is so different when, I mean, society is so different, it's changing so much. I, I get that historically, if dad was a BMW guy, then his son's a BMW guy, great. We keep making it in the same kind of way. But now in the era of digital natives and everybody's connected, culture is no longer locally reinforced, it's globally reinforced. Like There's an opportunity to completely change this thing now. So yeah, let, let's give it a shot. I mean. There's this idea of that, you know, is Apple going to build a car? And just imagining what would that be? Could it be something like, you know, how simple and uh, the smartphone is and stuff like that? It just kind of made me really start to dig into the reasons why they don't change so much. I mean, I, I talked to a, a guy the other day who worked at Ericsson, Sony Ericsson, when the iPhone came out, and they their job was to do a teardown of it. And they did a teardown. They said, the screen's not as good as ours, and none of the components are as good as ours. This is an inferior product. You've got nothing to worry about. Don't think about it. So in other words, they just physically can't see it. Um, and that's kind of the role of startups, is to take the kind of risks and the kind of chances that the big guys can't do. It's kind of our job. So yeah, I just just wanted to see. I just desperately wanted someone to have a shot at it, and then uh, I just felt compelled to give it a shot myself. Mm. Did you have to change, essentially, some of your ideas, innovation, innovative ideas, due to regulations that you have to follow because of the luggage of or the baggage inherited from the car industry? Well, first of all, I wouldn't call regulation necessarily baggage. Believe it or not, they make life really easy yeah. if you come up with something really innovative. Mm. So I was just recently talk, talking to one of the very early guys involved in Segway and getting that out there. And he, hearing his perspective helped to understand this a lot because he said, you know, with Segway, we invent this thing is completely new. There's no regulations. So it's all about, you know, lobbying and the laws and how do we get through this big mess? And he said, you're lucky. You just have a list of things to check off 
and bam, you can put it on the street. And the safety and all that kind of stuff is on the hands of the people that have developed that for a long time. But in terms of what uh, you know, what I would love that we could do, but regulations restricts it. I mean, one of the reasons why we went for the L7E heavy quadricycle classification in the early days, other than the fact that, you know, the prevailing opinion is this this costs a billion dollars and you got to crash forty cars in order to get overcome it. So that was a beast we we didn't know enough about to to challenge. But the other the other major advantage of it was just wildly less regulations. So being a heavy quadricycle, technically you don't need a steering wheel. You don't need a door. Right. But so, so you can have the freedom to reinvent those things. But in the M1 class, there is, for example, a regulation that says you have to have a steering lock. So effectively, this defines a steering column and there's no way around it. Um, but but again, it was good being able to design with that freedom because then all the principles we learned, we could then apply them to the M1 category now that we've transitioned over there. And the main reason for doing that is, well, there's two main reasons. Firstly, that billion dollar 40 car crashing beast, now that we partner up with people that, that do this on our behalf, that kind of goes away. By 2022, the homologation firm says all big OEMs will start to do homologation completely digitally. So it wildly mm-hmm. decreases all of the cost, and they want to use us, of course, to be the first to do it now in 2020. You only have to then do two crashes, frontal and side. So we solved that problem to some extent. And then the other major problem was we knew that if we came out and built something really crazy and different and leveraged this loophole to its maximum, there was a risk that they were going to come back and close that loophole. <laughs> and, and we now know that by 2020, there's, there's an additional 15 regulations that you have to overcome or additional 10 or 11 regulations. And the L7E category, you're now going to have to do nine of them. So you're going to have to do 90% of them anyway. So as our partners say, hey, look, we can solve this problem for you. Why not apply what you've learned, still have a very different machine because of your starting point being different, but homologated in the M1 category, now people can feel a lot more safe about the crash-related items, which did make me a little bit uneasy given that so many people are going to drop their kids off in it and stuff like that. But also then you have a globally homologated car. Now all of a sudden we don't have an individual regulation for every country. We've got one regulation globally. And when you have investors from 40 different countries and buyers and demand from all over the world, it really solves a lot of that problem. So, yeah, I would say, yeah, I mean, the M1 category has a couple of restrictions. Like, uh, you also have to have mirrors. You can't just have cameras yet. Mm-hmm. L7E, we could just have cameras. But luckily, our design is such that when they enable the cameras only, which can be as soon as 2020, 2021, the design is ready to just n- not put them on. Drop them, yeah. So it, it's already designed for that. It's like uh, any other car out there on the street uh, that is classified like M1. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like your, your Hummer. <laughs> <laughs> as of now, uh, where you actually can grab a part of the battery and, and charge it, wherever you are how far can you go on on that 
piece of battery. Yeah, so uh, just to clarify, I mean, uh, the battery, you know, 25 kilowatt hours, you're looking at 130 odd kilograms. So what the auxiliary battery was really about was there to solve a problem, uh, had just 30 kilometers of range, which is really enough to get to any charging point and so forth. Um, and, and the idea was you could address some of this range anxiety. We did a little battery innovation, a little IP there, and you could have this little like solution to the range anxiety. With a gasoline tank, if you run out of gas, which only idiots do, so I've done it about three, four times in my life, but I'm glad I didn't have a battery car because I've also ran out of battery on my Renault Twizy, <laughs> primarily because of a BMS uh, you know, problem. I have heaps arranged to get back to Lund, wind changes, and now I'm driving into the wind, bam, <laughs> stuck on the highway just out of Lund, guys had to come get me. So that sucks, but if, if you could uh, then have somebody drop off an auxiliary battery and rescue in that situation, it would address a lot of the range anxiety. But one of the real challenges we wanted to solve there was a lot of the market for this kind of car is high-income urban millennials, these people live in apartments, primarily. Where the heck do I charge? I live in an apartment. So the thought was, you know, you, you're probably not even commuting more than 30 kilometers. I mean, average commute 7.5, as I said. Now you've got options, a whole lot more options. But um, as we've developed this further, we've really honed in. You mentioned mobility as a service. We've really honed in on how are we gonna, what's, what's gonna be our place in the mobility as a service um, you know, universe. And we've really knuckled down on the thing that, that we can be great at and what our car's designed for, which is that daily commute. Instead of commuting from home to work and back again, and your apartment, and where do I charge it and so forth, we flip that script and say, you're commuting from work to home and back again. So a company can have in their car park a bunch of these cars. The company can use them on a pay-per-use basis, obviously. But the company only needs them nine to five. And one thing we want to address is underutilization of cars. The employee doesn't need to use it from nine to five. They need it up to nine and after five. So they can then take one of these cars on a subscription basis and commute home. Where do I charge it? Don't, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about Nobody in that scenario has to worry about owning the asset or insurance or cleaning it or charging it or none of that kind of stuff. And of course, because it's such a small form factor and because it's a pool, nobody owns a specific car, now you can park the cars and 20 cars can fit in what was four car parks plus a bit of road, mm. right, with a, a simple induction. And for that, we just need one three-phase power outlet. So now you start to reduce the need for that second family car and solve that real problem. What do I really need to do? Get back and forth from work, run around town. But other than that, as a millennial, I don't want to have a car. Mm. If I want to do a road trip, make it an awesome BMW gas guzzling thing and I'll hit the highway, right? But that's a one-off. I don't need the asset in my life depreciating and so forth. So. I mean, that will solve a lot of problems for a lot of people. Mm, uh, if, if that would be implemented, that most definitely. Uh, I mean, Pilot study in 2019 in Lund. Yeah. We will announce more stuff soon. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know Unity been reasoning about the, the autonomy and, and so on. So now we're taking it 
of the human uh, to to uh, do decisions like this and the the number of people getting killed in in traffic because of human mistakes is huge uh, you're curious about this as well right sure um but now there's a lot of different uh, opinions on this one and i talk to a lot of very confident americans and so forth and very confident people ah oh, we're gonna have EV, you know autonomous cars ever in a couple of years like make no mistake level five autonomy in the world today is extremely hard i i will quote i don't know if i should mention any names but to, to quote mobile eye it's a complete fantasy <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a fantasy today the idea of level five autonomy anyone can give it a shot anyone can like people work on it i mean we've done you know level five autonomous cars driving around on a mule car but as soon as humans get involved and now you need to do the roundabout in front of Arc de Triomphe on a rainy day and there's a ball that rolls out like it's it's very very challenging you don't get a chance to make a mistake there's a lot of people trying to really go all in on it and I'm I'm personally a little puzzled because there's so much value we can create with that technology without having to take any kind of risk um, so our approach is to just set up the cars with you know, the hardware needed, the, the computing power needed, the sensors needed, and step one, you know, start gathering data. Once we have as much data as possible, we can sensibly start to transition and, and create different kinds of value. But it's really thinking about what value can we create. Because from day one, if we put expensive sensors on there, we've got to create value for the, the driver or the buyer or the owner. So what can that be? Now, in terms of justifying that cost, first of all, sure, the, the data is very valuable, no doubt about it, mapping data and so forth. But for the driver specifically, I mean, you mentioned human error. I mean, humans get tired, they get fatigued. Well, there's a couple of your crashes. They get emotional, you know, they get angry, they do all ki kinds of crazy stuff. The computer never does those things. So the, the co-pilot features if you design that interior so that you can interact with it well, input and output, then we can start doing co-pilot features. So you don't merge in the wrong way, or if you're getting fatigued, the car knows it. Um, there's, there's just there's so much value we can create in terms of safety and usability without having to just sort of dive into level five autonomy. Um, so initially for us, it'll be about, about putting the hardware down there, gathering the data, and adding more and more bits of value. Like um, you've seen like standard off the shelf self parking, mm -hmm. great. How can we use that kind of technology to arrange a pool of mobility as a service cars so that we can use you know, fit 25 cars where four cars fit? Will come, you know, do we need more car parks? Absolutely, <laughs> right? So let, like, let's use it to solve problems like that. Um, and everyone else can attack autonomy. The technology will mature enough, sh soon enough, that we can have autonomous cars everywhere. But it's going to take a, take a while. Um, in terms of level five, I like the um, what's the T T car? What's the what's the Swedish one? The truck, teapot or something. There's a Swedish truck where they're they're remotely operating the car. I think a combination of the two, where you still have a, a human chaperone but they're remote okay. and in certain scenarios there's still a human making decisions there's ways we can ease into it 
and then eventually level five. But just diving into level five, it's very romantic. You don't need any humans, uh, but extremely challenging. Mm. But yeah. Actually, the challenging part is obviously while humans are still around too. If we remove the humans from the roads, then just the cars themselves would be quite efficient at handling most situations. But it's yeah, it's the unpredictability of us yeah, <laughs> that messes exactly. up. Yeah, but I, I really think it's 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 going to be exciting to see that happen in our lives. It's going to be great. Yeah, I really wish we started designing cities around people again instead of cars getting around. Yeah, yeah. I think you have a, a brilliant uh, selling strategy. I mean, going for uh, home electronic uh, market like Media Markt in Sweden, uh, where you can uh, pre-order your your uh, Unity car. That's really cool. I mean, that's not what BMW would think of, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a BMW wouldn't fit in that store, right? <laughs> so part of what we want to do is have people perceive it as something different. And our car looks great in the store. We want them to perceive it like a piece of consumer electronics, like in the expensive speaker section and the Apple section and this section. It kind of fits. It kind of makes sense. So it's a little bit about adjusting perceptions. It's a little bit about... Um, you know the inefficiency of the distributor network thing um, that was uh, you know a very successful market test and we, we might roll it out to stores all across uh, Europe and, and we ha certainly have that option but um, overwhelmingly online is, is where all of our sales are generated I think uh, that's probably due to the fact that there are physical locations and people get to see that content and they get to get confidence in that so they book it online. Um, but uh, online is overwhelmingly where people want to buy this kind of car. But you're not planning to go dealer style from sort of more original forms of sales and marketing? No, I mean, um, with with all due respect to car dealers out there, I. Uh, that, that whole thing makes me a little uneasy about a long-term business. Mm -hmm. A lot of businesses are going to change. The dealer network works a lot, though, works really well for cars as they are today, no doubt about it. It's good to have a place to go get your car serviced and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, it doesn't fit this kind of car. No. Yeah. So how do you get it serviced? Yeah, so, um, do we, again, we do it in a, a significantly more agile, leaner manner. If I could just back up a bit to the revenues generated by automotive, 65% of the margin comes from servicing. So that's a pretty good business. Well, why wouldn't you want to have that business? Well, first of all, it's also a pain point, right? You know, paying to get your oil changed and pay, constantly paying for all this stuff. We like to try and solve pain points. But also, the industry has a real big challenge in that all these revenues come from that. But... Just to quote, for example, the Chevy Bolt, which is pretty much the same looking car, it uses it needs requires sixty percent less servicing. So the problem with the EVs is not just that it changes their business and cannibalizes their production and so forth, their product, but it also cannibalizes their business model. So we don't focus on that business model for our recurring revenue. We hand it over to uh, partners. So in in Sweden, it's the likes of McNorman. Uh, and the rest of Europe, it's it's one French company called Mobivia. They are Norauto, and basically the Mecanorman in other, they're the market leader in, in the rest of Europe. They 
take over that entire business. We can wildly reduce the cost for the customer. Uh, we just add a 10% markup on the parts to cover operational costs and go here, take this business, let's let's make sure we, we give them a good service like Apple Care or something like that. And then our recurring revenues, of course, that's where we switch over to mobility as a service. Mm. Mm -hmm. Disruptive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A lot of work to do there, but um, but it's really the only way that makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And that'll also be uh, the distribution point as well. So when you get your car the first time, you pick it up from one of them stores, they take it through the, the spin, of course they wear our t-shirt, take you through all the different steps, now you're ready to go and come back to us whenever you have a problem you need a service. Which is, it's a software update and a pat on the back. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know? But the environmental impact on electric vehicles taking over combustion engines and, and uh, replacing old cars, that is something that, I don't know, ha have you thought about that? Or has that, that been a, like a driving force for you guys? Or Definitely, and one of the big driving forces there is when you really look at the life cycle analysis and you go, hang on, a hybrid or a really efficient diesel is not that big of a change. I would maybe have presented that same car on the base of public health because of vehicle emissions in cities and the experience of life in a city. But pushing too far on the, the carbon emission thing, I mean, if you still buy a car that's still a big you know, two tons, massive battery, a lot of energy consumption, it's parked for most of its life, I'm commuting with one person in the car, there's a lot of other parts of the model and the culture you've got to look at. Look at the way we use cars and what, what do we use that second car for? What do we use the, you know, why are we buying it? Is there another model? I mean, eventually, uh, you know, we have to direct sell this car now because we have to get the volumes up, otherwise we can't get production costs and bill of materials costs down. So you've got to sell cars, you've got to get volumes, plus heaps of people want to buy it. But eventually, it'd be great to never sell a car and just sell it to our own mobility as a service company. Whoever needs it, they, they use it like that, and we can have a... A smaller footprint, lightweight, uh, you know, more more sustainable uh, materials, and it's our responsibility to take care of that machine through it throughout, throughout its life. Um, for mobility as a service, that means we can refurbish it. We can actually generate ten times more revenue across its life cycle. So there's every reason to do it. Obviously, not if your whole business is buy a car, buy a car. Hmm. But if you're a startup, there's every reason to do that stuff. So, yeah, I think the environmental impact's going to be great. The health impact's going to be bigger um, in terms of where they are today. But um, lightweight EVs that are smaller form factor, smaller footprint, but it's still attractive for all the same reasons, like safety and space and you know visibility and stuff like that that's going to have a huge impact. Obviously, EVs have a big advantage because of their simplicity of what, what, what's needed to run. Right? Engines can fit into the wheel, essentially, and batteries can be hidden pretty much anywhere. You can put it in the bottom, you could actually create a chassis that is a bat the battery. I've heard about experiments doing that. I'm really waiting for the breakthrough when we accept new variations on the shape of a car because cars are still so much like other cars because that's the way we've always seen cars right 
Do you see that sort of trend breaking away? I mean, I've, your car doesn't look like an average car already. I think you've taken some brave steps pushing the boundaries. I don't know if you've had any pushback on that, but... I mean, so first of all, for our car, uh, sure. I s lost a lot of health obsessing over where is the right balance. It can't be the same car. I mean, the, the straight shoulder line, dead straight shoulder line, and a single radius right across the roof, to be able to say, this this can't deviate from that, that has to be done. That, sure, that that was brutal. Like, you, you it, it's funnily enough, what I call, you know, economics, you have a diminishing marginal return. I call it in design the diminishing marginal return of weirdness curve, <laughs> where on one axis you have uh, satisfaction on one axis you have weirdness so a little more weirdness a little more satisfaction a little more weirdness a little more satisfaction but if you go one point too far on weirdness it just disappears weird, yeah. aka google glass or aka the segue at the wrong time mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. um, so getting that balance right being able to have the right degree of weirdness but still making it be able to click with people sure I mean I I I took that to this degree of psychosis to be, to be able to try and get that balance right. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd love to see the form factor change a little bit. We've attempted so many times in history to do it, like with the, the um, what was it, the, the little pedal car from the UK. UK guys are great at making weird design, <laughs> wacky <laughs> designs. True. There's a form factor that I really like, and that's the Litzy one from California, two wheels, sorry, ah. huge gyroscope, so it sits on two wheels, but it, it drives like a car. Okay. So you can be hit from the side at 60 kilometers an hour oh, yeah. and it'll stay up. Just slides. Yeah, that's away. cool. Oh my gosh, that's cool. I have to look that up. Yeah, let's see one, check that one out. So yeah, it'd be great to see him change a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, again, another big challenge of an existing OEM. You have your religion, you have your design religion, and you have your DNA of your design, and you just can't come out with something too wacky. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, people are not saying, this is not a, well, I don't want to mention any names, but this is not what I know your brand to be. Mm -hmm. uh, that's something different. Yeah, geez, imagine in 20 years, I, I hope they're so crazy. And if we, if they still look the same, I will have a <laughs> terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach like we didn't pull it off. It just said you Tesla, right? They they tilted the market, and now all of a sudden it was cool to make electric cars. Mm -hmm. If our contribution could be, it's cool to make them completely different, mm -hmm. and everyone comes in and does something completely different, that would be awesome. And when um, when when journalists say, "Aren't you worried that the big guys are going to compete with your idea?" I always say, "That's the idea. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's plenty of money to be made." But in terms of like the need that humans have for some kind of legacy, that would be cool. I've been a little bit curious about the choice of uh, your domain name. <laughs> yeah. So it's unity.earth. <laughs> yeah. So uh, creating cars for um, outside of Earth as atmosphere, is that an option in the future, you think? I hope so. It sounds <laughs> like a great idea. Uh, of course, I've been thinking of the cool, cool ideas. Uh, here's some wacky ideas that I love. Of course, I, I like the idea of spaceships going up, but once again, very heavy, a lot of energy use. Is there another way to do it? I know nothing about this industry, but one cool thing that I've seen is this 
company in Barcelona. I forget what they're called, O2O or something like that. They take a, they use a weather balloon mm. that goes extremely high and they launch the satellite off the weather balloon. Mm -hmm. That sounds like our style of doing something. Very low energy, very efficient. And when you get up there, what do you do? Of course, you can launch satellites. I think something that would impact humans a lot is getting a chance to look back at Earth and really get an understanding of what's going on here. That's what our logo is all about. Uh, but people are doing that. So I thought, what would, what would be fun if you ever did have that kind of resources available, you know, and you're an old guy, what would be fun? Space jet skis. <laughs> right? <laughs> the primary problem with the, the, that thing is it goes up and you don't go down in the same place. You might drift a damn long way. So space jet ski brings you back and you land in the same spot. That would be cool. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but space jet ski is a long way away. So how about we look at what you you would like the future to turn out to be your perception of the way ahead imagine if we weren't all afraid of something being dorky we might yeah. do that instead of driving a car or we might do that instead of this perhaps like I said path dependency can become a little damaging uh, once upon a time it kept us safe from getting eaten by lions but if our path dependency is now I'm used to diesel I like diesel that might be killing you mm. So, yeah, forging new paths, I think. Well, that's it for this episode of Way Ahead Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Unity, and thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to write us at podcast at wayahead.se. Check out the show notes for links to stuff we talked about. We are always looking to improve the show, so if you have ideas or know of a person we should totally talk to, drop us a line. Our email is podcast at wayahead.se. Until next time, keep looking ahead.